0: I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theatre scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theatre scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theatre creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be Stageworthy. If you want to support the work that I do on Stageworthy, you can do that by leaving a tip, either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Your support helps me cover the cost of making this show, helps expand the show, and more. You can find a link to the digital tip jar in the show notes, which you can find on your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. This week on the podcast, my guest is Indrit Kasapi. Indrit is a producer actor dancer and creator based in toronto he's the founding artistic producer for lemon tree creations as well as the artistic producer at theater Pass in this episode we talked about how lemon tree creations first resisted and then embraced being known as a queer company decolonial rehearsal processes and exploring new ways to engage audiences through focusing on the audience experience here's our conversation Could you, if you were to describe for somebody your artistic practice, or or describe you, yourself as an artist, how would you do that?
1: Mm. That's such a tough question. I would, you know, I'd say I'm a performer, artist, writer, director, producer. I always say that I'm an artist who works a lot, like in in theater, live performance with, with uh, and and text. Nice, just nice. such a general way to to say that. You know, it. Do you know what I mean? It's like you know yeah. you work with the performance and you
0: work with movement and text. That can be so many things, right? So, it's uh, a good way to put it because I mean it does cover a lot of bases. Um, yeah, exactly. I always find it interesting uh, people's uh, people's hyphenates, like how they describe themselves, because. I don't I think in the entire time that I've been doing this podcast, which is about six years now, I think I've spoken to two people who describe themselves as one thing. Right. And that's such a rare thing in the, the theater world, in the theater. I guess world. I guess world is the right term, just yeah, in terms right of, term. of, of, of how how we operate today. When I was in theater school, they told us only do one thing you know and this was yeah. a long time ago cuz I'm an old man and they they huh. they they were they made it very clear you should never admit to doing anything other than acting and that was the thing right. they told us otherwise it's and, yeah. 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 But nothing could be further from what what is necessary now. That said, could you you know I I know I want to get to to theater past Mariah, but first I want to talk about about lemon Tree creations cuz that is I like to to the things that I don't know about are the ones that are most fascinating to me, and I have not yet heard of Lemon Tree Creations, so I would love to to learn about that. Could you describe for me Lemon Tree Creations?
1: Yeah, Lemon Tree is a I would say it's a collective of artists. It's a project based organization and it's been around since 2008. It started off because I needed a name to put on the, my application to SummerWorks, <laughs> you know? And I was like, oh God, what am I going to call this thing? It was not really like a thing that I, you know, I didn't really think it was going to be something that was going to, you know, go on for as long as it did. And lemon, we I grew up back home in Albania and we had a lemon tree in front of my house and my bedroom looked looked at this tree. So I thought, you know, that's kind of like poetic, you know, <laughs> you know, I didn't think it was going to stick. So I just thought, you know, I'll just call it Lemon Tree. And, you know, sort of spiraled that way. I was at the time working with Jonathan Sainan on on a, my new my first play that I ever wrote called The Red Devil. And, you know, Jonathan and I started taking a lot more interest in queer theater, you know, and then at that point, Alvis came on board and then it sort of materialized in this very organic authentic way you know and uh, Cole and I really bonded over you know theater and queer theater specifically and and, and, I, and at some point it felt like you know when we first were in existence we were resisting the word queer we were like we don't want to be queer you know that's we don't want to in a way we we saw that as a way to limit ourselves and but it didn't matter what we saw ourselves as because the community started calling us the queer theater company. And so eventually at some point we became, we, we embraced it. We we're like, we are a queer theater company. That's what we're doing. You know, Right? <laughs> yeah. ourselves here. So let's just, you know, embrace it. Let's just, you know, let's actually take it on. And then it has become this thing now that's very intentionally a project based queer collective of artists that come together and produce theater. once. You know, we take like long periods of time to develop work, and we are definitely project-based, so that if we want to fold at any time, we can.
0: Now, I want to come back to the the way that you work, the way that you create work, because I find that that a fascinating topic. But I will say, how many theater companies... Found their name because of the desperation to get something submitted for fringe (laughs) or summer works or something like that. So many companies are like, "Well, I guess that's our name now." Somebody that somebody needs to write a book about that. That's for sure. For sure, yeah. Now, just uh, let's let's dive into the the way that the the lemon tree creations works. Like, do you have a particular way that you you develop the work that you put that you do, or is it is it specific to each project? How do you how do you do the process of creating? A new work
1: yeah i mean it has evolved and it keeps evolving you know i think where we're at right now is that we are very interested in decolonial ways of, of being in a rehearsal and in creation and so we investigate that on a regular basis like what does that mean what does that mean to decolonize and uh, you know we have those conversations on a regular basis and whether it's you know how is the room run who is in the room how does the sort of hierarchical power structures in the room, how do they exist? You know, how is there a director and how do the performers work with a director and what kind of rehearsal hours do you have? You know, we're, we're thinking about that. We're thinking about holistic ways of, of making theater. So that's like one thing. The other thing is that what we do is we, we create new work. So we sometimes commission artists to write new plays. Other times, um, We just produce new plays that, you know, we develop maybe a little bit, but, you know, we meet the artist at a point in their development where they're closer to production. And also we revive like what we want to call like queer classics, you know, like, for example, Lilies that we did or Jean Genet. We did some Jean Genet at the beginning of, you know, this whole lifespan of Lemon Tree. So it's sort of a combination of both. When we're reviving queer classics, we're looking at it from the lens of like, why are we doing this now? What's the point of doing Lily's at this, you know, day and age? And when we're looking at new work, we're really kind of bouncing off of from the queer classes, kind of going, what was not answered from these, from this work? Like, you know, with, with Body politic, for example, you know, we got... We got to, we were doing Jean Genet and we were talking about queer life, you know, back in the day when Jean Genet was around. And we started thinking about what queer life was like in Toronto at the time. And so then we created Still Life as kind of a res, direct result to that question of like, what does, it, what does it mean to be queer? I mean, it's such a big question. We tried to answer it, you know, and we, I thought we, I think we did the best we could. I'm not sure that it you know, fully answered the question of what does it mean to be queer in Toronto at that time when we created it. But, you know, we're constantly, I think, navigating work by questioning the work that we're currently doing, you know? It's like, oh, we're doing this play, it's answering this question, what Mm -hmm. does it not answer? Okay, maybe there's another artist who can delve into that, you know? Right,
0: right. Now, you mentioned about the way that you're you're constructing the room the power structures and and who's in the room and and all of that sort of thing i think that's something that is not particularly common i think in in sometimes in indie theater and in some places we're talking a lot about about the room and what the rehearsal hall should look like but there's a whole history of the way that rehearsal halls have been run where the director is the is the the uh-huh the all the be all and end all god to to the detriment sometimes of the people in the cast there have been abuses and things (laughs) like that so the 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 question of 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 how the room works is one that that is important so is this something that you have that that lemon tree has always examined or is that a relatively recent thing that 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 you've brought to the rehearsal hall it's a relatively
1: new i wouldn't say relatively new but it's not something that's always existed. Like I said, you know, it started because I needed a name on an application. I think it evolved with time. I think it took the first five years was just us doing kind of like everything. You know, we were doing fringe, some works, shows in basements. Another friend of ours was like, hey, can you produce our show? You know, we we're like, yeah, let's do it. You know, so there was really no mandate. There wasn't really any sort of thinking, deep thinking about it. Yeah. So in the last, you know, we've been around... For was it twelve years now? I say in the last seven years, it's it, it, we've been more intentional in terms of what we're exploring and evolving. That you know, in terms of you know the idea of decolonizing the room, mm. decolonizing the work, like that's probably more in, in the sort of latter part of the, of, the, of our existence. Mm. And I think we it, that's what we love about it, you know, that we can continue to grow and investigate and you know, make the creative process better, you know? So yeah, I would say that's, that's, that's a new thing. Mm,
0: Awesome. Now, one of the things that I notice in, in, in your bio is that you're part of a dance company called Corpus. Um, Has dance always been a thing for you or is that something that you came to later?
1: No, I'm primarily like, you could say that I'm a dancer. Like I trained as a dancer. I was five years old when I started dancing. I trained back home in Albanian folk dance and you know what ballet and what what we call here jazz, but we call this something different there you know when I moved here, I was fifteen and so I pursued that a bit more i started i continued to dance, but you know i don't know if you know anything about the dance world by the time you're fifteen you're a little too old you know <laughs> to pursue it professionally but it wasn't that like i i i back home i i'm you know my family yeah, I was presented with the opportunity to pursue it as a career, and I didn't go to, the, you know, what you call, what we have here, the National Ballet School there, we have the same thing. So, you know, by the time I was 15, I was kind of like, I don't know, like, I, I'm not going in the route of a professional dancer, right? Like, I could have gone to, let's say, post-secondary school, and stuff, but I didn't go to National Ballet, and so... Back in the day I was thinking like if you're not doing ballet, like you're not really dancing, right? Which was very limiting. But that's that's the school of that's the school I came from, you know. And uh, so but when I got here I was very lucky. I had an amazing drama teacher, his name is Teodoro Dragonieri, and he's still around, he's an amazing artist. And um I just like he's just I he made me fall in love with theater, you know. And it was just sort of it was such an automatic kind of transition for me because I was I I knew I wanted to do something with live performance. So I was like, oh, maybe I should just try this whole theater thing. And I was a new immigrant. It helped a lot with learning the language and mm. the culture as well and cuz now I had to deal with text, which was such a huge challenge for me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I stopped dancing, I guess I would say probably around that time and got right into theater.
0: I took theater more seriously. <laughs> yeah. Did, I mean, you were, you were like a teenager at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Now, at what point did you figure out that theater was a thing that you were going to like do that was going to be your, your life? Oh,
1: I would say like the moment I started drama classes with, with Mr. Dragonieri. Mr. Drag I was like this is like this is it like this is awesome I can do this and um, I remember from the get-go actually when I think back that what I loved the most was not necessarily being on stage I loved directing and mm. getting involved from that perspective but because I was a dancer I also had this like weird kind of like a sense of competition like you know like I know I want to be on stage I want to be on stage you know like because that's you know like I find like, a lot of young young emerging performers that out kind of theater schools or any institutions where they've trained, there's this sense that they have to be performers, you know, like that, that for some reason, all the other positions in the theater that we have are like less than, you know, like that sort of mm. being a performer is the most sought after, or at least that's like my sense. I could be completely wrong about this, but I, I remember thinking that I wanted to perform because it felt like i I should, I should be a performer, you know?
0: That's a really interesting thing because I know and I've talked to a few people who they sort of tell the story of like going to theater school thinking that they were going to be a performer because they thought that's what you did. You should. You had to. And then they did like a directing class and they were like, oh, that's. Now that I like, and they sort of like shifted Mm -hmm. to that, or they did a writing class and they found that that was, that was something they, they navigated to more. It's interesting that, that so many, I think of us go into the theater school world and, and go down that route because that's the thing that I think we think that's what theater is. We don't. Correct. When I was in high school, there's no way that I thought that it was anything else. It was like theater is being an actor. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And 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 I would add that it's not even that's what theater is. It's that's what success means, right? Mm-hmm. That you are yeah. an actor, you mm-hmm. know. And you can def- people define it in different ways. Some people define actor by being at Stratford. Some mm. others define it by being in movies and film and TV. But regardless, that felt to me like you know my success as a human being meant that I needed to be successful as an actor. And then me trying out the whole other, all the other things like that I was really good at, like writing or choreographing or directing or producing. I was really good at producing, you know, that for some reason that meant that I was no longer now an actor and that I was no longer a good actor, you know, mm. that I had sort of failed. And so it took me a long time to get to a place where I was like, you know what, this is, can you swear on this podcast? Yeah, I was... fuck yeah. I was like I was like, that's fucked up, like that's really yeah. fucked up, you know, and I was like, I'm really good at all these things, and I enjoy doing all these things, so why am i not why can i not why can one person not be a producer and an actor when I want to and and a writer or a choreographer, all those things right, like you should be able to do that,
0: yeah, I agree, I think that 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 doing all of those things makes you better at all of the things, right? If you're if you're a director <laughs> sense, and you're yeah. an actor, you're a better director because you've been an actor and vice versa, the same with being a writer, the same with being a producer. You have this incredible understanding of all of the things that go into it. So yeah. it just makes you better at each of the things that you're doing.
1: Correct, yeah. And there's something to be said like, you know, I don't want to put like there is something to be said about the idea that you know you dedicate yourself to that one thing and you sort of master it, there's a lot of people that are very good at that they are mm-hmm. you know, amazing directors and they have no interest in being on stage and there are some people that are amazing performers and they have no interest in doing anything else that's there's there's nothing wrong with that, but I also think that equally to that, you can also be an amazing director and producer. you know you just have to learn how to do all those things and learn how you're going to navigate that because I think sometimes the problem is that you end up. In the industry we're at right now is a lot of young artists are end up doing these things because they have to. They end up producing because they have to. And then what they really want to do is write or what they really want to do is be on stage. And so they are kind of like shitty producers and then shitty writers. Mm-hmm. And so they've written a play and they're producing it themselves in kind of shitty ways. But because they want to be on stage. Do you know what I mean? And so and I think that's what is not good is when you're doing something because you have to. Mm-hmm. But if you really want to, and you want to do it well, there are ways that you can do all these things. Like I don't do, I know my limit of these hyphenates, right? Like I cannot do more than two hyphenates in one project. And there's certain combinations of these hyphenates that cannot live. Like if I'm going to perform, I'm not doing any of the other things. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> like like don't talk to me because I need to like you know I'm I'm a weird performer. I have a lot of like anxiety and I need a lot of space and stuff like that. But you know I can very easily write and direct, you yes. know, like combinations like that or I could write and produce. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of artists to do that. Donna Saint, Donna Michelle Saint Bernard is one person I can think of that have the capacity to write you know, and focus on that, and then they shift and they become the producer. Mm. And they love both, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's I think I you know the one of the the worst combinations is that that dreaded actor director. Oh god.
1: <laughs> 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 yeah.
0: yeah, yeah.
1: You know, it, it's it can be done though. There are people that can do it. I. It's very rare that I see like a show where I see an actor director where I, where the sh- where the show that where the clearly like the person who's doing is has given has doing one thing better than the other. You know, mm, yeah, like, it's very clear that, oh, God, like you didn't direct yourself here at all. You know, you're just sort of running around.
0: I think there's there's only one way that that can work. And that is that the the person who is the director, who's also the actor, has to be able to give up enough of their ego as the director to have an assistant director direct them and give that person empower that person to to give them the kind of feedback that a director would give yeah but that's a rare thing to find somebody who can drop the ego like that
1: yeah yeah and and again like there are ways there's if we're thinking of the creative process in in sort of other ways that it exists like what if you do have a group of people that are directing it like what if Like, you know, Mm -hmm. you you don't call it directed. call it outside eyes, call it collaborators or outside collaborators, however you want to sort of frame it. But it's essentially, you know, the theater, the beauty of theater is that it's live performance and it's your body and it's your spirit and it's your presence. And so we absolutely require somebody on the outside to tell you what it looks like on the outside because it's a different experience. And that's what you're doing it for. You're doing it Mm -hmm. for the audience to come see it's very yeah. different than when you're doing film. You can probably direct yourself because you can go back and see it. Right. Yeah.
0: Like yeah. Um that's that's the main difference is you do you often see an actor who directs and they can do that successfully on film because you can you can, like you say, immediately go and watch the playback and see yeah if it was good or not.
1: Yeah. I would be like <clears throat> and also to me, for me personally, like I just don't have those kind that kind of Confidence, as yeah, I know. Mean. You know, to be to kind of because it's it's two pretty big roles, right? To just kind of have that kind of confidence, and you're like, I'm 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 killing it. I'm doing it really well on both sides, you know. <laughs> so usually, I, yeah, my experience is like, oh god, everything sucks, you know. Yeah, <laughs>
0: like, yeah, I have found it, and I've got I got some great advice when I started writing and performing my own stuff. And the great advice that I that people who had more experience in that than me gave me was the fact that you should. As the writer, choose a point after which you are no longer writing. Yeah. Because yeah. I know people and they said, I didn't do that. And I spent the time while I should have been rehearsing, still rewriting. Right. The piece. And yeah. It, yeah. It's so to their detriment, to the, to the detriment yeah. of the show. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I often say, you know, I, I just say like the, the writer is not in the room. You know, and if you need the writer in the room, then you're going to, we're going to say the writer is in the room and then I can be in the room as the writer, you know, mm-hmm. but you know, I don't, I don't, I would never, I did that once with the first play where I performed and I wrote the play and that was the last time I will ever do that. Even with the last play I wrote, I had to step in as one of the dancers, mm. but very last minute, cause we have a, we had a small injury, but I I would never step on stage as a mm. performer if it's something that I wrote.
0: Mm. It's very difficult to do and you have to yeah. be able to like get the, you literally have to be able to send the the writer out of the room and, and trust the yeah. director yeah. to be, now yeah. interpret the work. Yeah,
1: Totally. And for me personally, I can't hear the play, you know, I can't, I'm unable to actually hear the full play because I'm constantly concerned with like my intentions as an actor. Right. So I'm not necessarily mm-hmm. hearing the rhythm of the whole play, and so I can't. It's very hard for me to do that. I think mm-hmm. some people can. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you have like writer performers like Daniel McIver, amazing. Yeah. Like incredible. So th- he's got a system, I'm sure. I have never worked with him. I don't know what that system is, but it definitely <laughs> works.
0: You know, he's got some That's good plays <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, speaking of great plays, Theater Pass Mirai is. Uh, you are the artistic producer at Theater Pass Mirai. How long have you been? With the uh, Theater Pass, I've been with Theater
1: Pass Mirai for about three years now. Yeah, 2019 is when I started. Originally, I took over at uh, the time there was uh, Jiv Paris Ram, was the associate artistic director, and he moved on to become the artistic director at Rumble Theater in Vancouver. And he asked me to come and take on one of the projects that they had going on at the time, which was the Accessibility Labs. I was doing some accessibility work at Cahoots Theatre as the associate there. And so it was just beautiful transition for me, it's something I really cared about, beautiful, like really awesome project they had going on. So I took over sort of freelance for that project. Very soon after that, Marjorie, who's one of my mentors and a friend, um, she moved on and she became the AD at 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 Theater and she asked me she said well do you want to come here as the associate artistic director i need one here and i thought oh that's amazing that that's beautiful i i loved working with her and i wanted to continue growing with her and uh, this was a much larger venue a lot of history a lot of and also working with like independent artists young independent artists i just you know totally right up my alley and then things just sort of progressed from there. At that point, I think, you know, the pandemic happened that, you know, that thing that shall not be mentioned. And um, eventually a regime left and I was asked to step in as the interim for a bit while the company was figuring itself out. At that time, we were really, well, I was brought into the conversation about the restructuring. They were reconsidering really what leadership looks like, you know, especially for theater Pas a company that's, Founded by collective creation and collective ways of thinking from a group of, you know, very avant garde artists from a college. And they did a lot of, you know, naked plays high on weed, you know, like it's got some very alternative roots, you know. And so it made sense. And I love that Marjorie was returning the company to its, its very alternative ways of thinking. And so, what does that mean in terms of leadership? Well, maybe it's not a sort of, you know, this hierarchy of just an artistic director and a managing director. Maybe there's three people running it. And so it was great to be a part of that rethinking. And now I'm sitting at, at, in the role of the artistic producer with a new managing director on board. And Marjorie the artistic
0: director. When you, say, I mean, we don't like to talk about the pandemic, but you kind of have to because you you started you you started yeah. the role in 2019. Yes. Anytime somebody says they started something in 2019, it's my so heart sad. drops because yeah. it's like, uh, you start and you go into 2020 with all of the ideas and everything oh, yeah. else, and then it all sort of falls apart. Yeah. But the one thing that I think that the pandemic did do is force us into a position where we are looking at uh, different ways that theater can be produced, can be experienced and things like that. I know that's something that you are also interested in. Is that something that is, that has been fueled by the pandemic or is that something that existed before for you? And what does that mean to you? I think I've always had uh, the spirit of, wanting to
1: reinvestigate things for sure. But I think the pandemic enhanced that because it became very clear to not just me, I think to all of us, that the theater was in the middle of an identity crisis, you know, as a medium. Like, what the hell are we doing? Like, who's coming to the theater anymore? And why do people come to the theater? What kind of theater are we making? You know, we're still making theater that... Is of a certain era and of a certain understanding of what theater should be like. So now that the pandemic is happening and people can leave their homes, and people clearly are obsessed with film and TV even more so than they were in the past, literally has become their sort of way of surviving. You know, people were watching so much TV and 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 film. And we were kind of like, you know, the thing that we had pushed against from was technology. You know, because we were, we were kind of, well, we don't, we don't do film. That's not our thing. You know, we're, we're, we're theater. So much so that even our unions and our regulation is, is literally like, you know, dividing the two worlds, right? Like drastically dividing. So suddenly we're doing digital art and what does that mean? You know? So for me, I think the pandemic made me go, yeah, like what are the ways in which we can make theater that can be different than what it looks like right now and maybe can address most importantly, this question around our identity. Like what is the kind of theater people will, you know, get out of their homes, buy a ticket and come to the show? Because the sense I get these days is that most people will come to a show maybe once a year. And when I say most people, I don't mean artists, right? Like I mean, you know, engineers and, and, and accountants and, You know, people who didn't do drama in Mm -hmm. in high school or or in college, people who actually have the financial capacity to pay 50 bucks for a show and come see a a play. Why are they not coming to the play at once a month? Mm -hmm. You know, once a month, like I can see that they're bored at home. You know, they've seen all the movies, they've seen all the TV shows, they've gone to the restaurants. They want variety. And so you can see the moment, like BlogTO posts about something wild going on. People are going to it. Because people want to go somewhere, but why are they not coming to the theater? And it's affordable. You know, some shows are 20 Every theater company in the city has a, a way for you to get a cheap price. If you're under 30, you can probably get like $25 tickets or even less for some of them. You, you know, I have friends of mine who I was like, do you know you can go to the National Ballet for $29? Mm. You know, you can go to... And they were like, what? I didn't know that. Like... Like, it's not that they don't know it. It's not that the information isn't there. It's that they, it's not part of our cultural sort of upbringing or it's not part of, it's not part of our culture. We don't talk about it. We don't do it. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know that I have the answer, but it's certainly where I'm at right now. I'm asking these questions. The. Yeah the 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 answers I've gotten when I ask people is to say well it's too limiting it's really dark in there the seats are really close you know I'm asked not to use my phone which is so annoying which these are fair like initially you're like oh come on but they're legitimate things right like that's those are the things that we like about theater we like that it's dark and we like that it's you know we're squished and we're just gonna see magic Mm. on stage but a lot of people don't come because it's too high risk they can't leave if they don't like it they can pay 12 bucks to go see a movie and they hate it they just walk out
0: you know yeah no that's absolutely true and i think i think that sometimes you know i mean you bring up movies so movies are dark and people don't use their phones in the movie at least they shouldn't Everybody gets mad if they do. There's All always right. that one person though. But I think there's the difference in like so some people they don't go to Theater Pass Mariah Factory, Tarragon. They will go to the big Mervish production. And you know Again, because it's lower risk. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. they know they're gonna pay
1: that 50 bucks and it's gonna be a great musical. Yeah. And mm. they can leave whenever they want. Yeah. Right? Like For sure.
0: I mean, it's still like, yeah, sure, they could leave whenever they want. It's still like everybody does watch you leave in that big theater if right. you get up right. and leave. But there is an intermission and you can sneak out at that point. Correct. Know? Yeah. Correct. I wonder, because I think that, that, that we are, we're a culture now that really is, is, is looking at, like, people are going to experiences. They're going to the immersive Van Gogh experience.
1: Oh, yeah. Like Which that, is right? literally a projection show.
0: it is literally a projection show. (laughs) Um, Theater's been doing that. We've been doing like, yeah. Anyway, yeah. But the question is, like, how? How do we get people to to come to that? I think we've done ourselves disservices in the past because there's lots of times when you know people go to see a show and they didn't get it or they didn't like it, and that becomes their whole experience of theater right yeah. I went to a play once and I didn't like it so yeah I'm not gonna go again we don't I mean let's face it I've seen enough shows that are like you walk in there's the living room set up and you're like okay so this oh is god yeah yeah thing, right you know and you know th- those have their place but when you see like after like going to like you've seen five in a row the living room set up you kind of like I'm a little bored with that so yeah. it's like one of those questions like what what do we do Mm -hmm. to let people know that the, like, how do we share the experience with them? Yeah. Well, I I kind of,
1: sorry, go ahead. No, I, I, all I was going to say is that I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think, I don't know that I have the answer to that, but there are ways that we can at least try some things. That's where I'm at right now. It's like, we have to start trying to do things a bit differently. And so, Whether it is like part of it, I think that we don't run our plays long enough because we Mm -hmm. cannot. It's too expensive. You know, when you think about the Van Gogh experience that you're referring to, you know, they ran that for a long time. So, because word of mouth got out, people, you know, so then suddenly you start seeing the flock of people coming. By the time word of mouth gets out for plays in Toronto, it's going to close. It's closed already because it's not running long enough. I think. In Toronto, the only one I know that runs plays long is probably Tarragon, yeah. right? For a bit longer than the others, and even that, it's probably like four weeks, maybe. I don't know that that's enough time for the word to spread out. I've noticed that that's a thing. The other thing is that we don't have the marketing ability. Like it comes down to money. Like in order mm-hmm. in order for us to really invest in letting people know that this exciting cool thing is happening especially a lot of cool stuff that happens in Toronto is like at the indie level right like yeah. that kind of you know you see these plays and they're amazing and you we hear about it because we're in the industry so the word yeah. spreads like you know like fire and a lot of my friends that's what they say they say well you know I tell them like, go see this go see it now you know but you know for the larger population where are they going to find out about it i mean they don't, people don't pick up Now Magazine anymore and look at the listings, right? Well,
0: there is no Now Magazine to pick there up anymore. There is no anymore. Magazine anymore. I know, sad. So sad. And, and we've lost almost all of our, our media coverage as far Correct. as theater goes. Correct. Uh, you know, Globe and Mail still is maybe the only newspaper that has a full-time reporter covering the theater, but they don't really cover indie. Yeah. Um. And they don't, you know, so they're like covering things on a certain level everybody else is sort of like hiring a freelancer now and then. So maybe you see reviews, but that the coverage is not there. Not even blog TO that's telling everybody about the, there's a sunflower field and everybody rushes to the sunflower field to take pictures and and crowds it and ruins it, but they won't talk like, they're not covering theater at all.
1: Nope. No. Yeah. It's very difficult. So you can see all the barriers that the, that, you know, and it's not just theater, theater, dance, you know, yeah. live, perf- live performance as sort of more, you know, mid-sized to indie level, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's very difficult. You have, we do have people who still go to the theater and they've always gone to the theater. And you're always yeah. going to have that group of people that always come, I think. But to, you know, break through this level where we're at right now in terms of the amount of theater that happens... To sort of the next level where people were you seeing lineups around the corner. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I was reading the history of Theatre Pass Mariah and they were talking about the farm show, and they were talking about how long they ran it mm-hmm. in the book, and they were talking about how there was lineups around the corner for the show. Like they couldn't sell it fast enough. Like they they were just constantly selling tickets, you know. In my entire career in this industry. <laughs> I don't, I think I can think of like one show that's had that kind of experience where Mm. literally you're selling tickets like crazy. At some point there's, there's just a finite number of people that come see stuff here.
0: Yeah. 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 I remember I did a show years ago with a theater company that I was part of. We did play in the style of a silent film. And I remember, um, back in those days, my, my old theater school acting teacher came to the show. And at the time he saw it and he left and he said, well, if this was a real city, this would never close. And I was like, at the time, I was like, what does he even mean by that? But then I realized that what he meant was like in a city like New York or London, it would run and it would run and it would run. And somebody would say, oh, bring this to the theater. We'll run it in perpetuity because there's so many theaters there that can do it the capitalist thing and all that sort of thing. And that 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 kind of thing never happens here. Yeah. And it's it sort of, we're not set up to be able to do that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and so that's why it's like, how do we, how, but we have, what we do have is creativity, you know, we have imagination and mm-hmm. so. I think we just have to stop regurgitating the same kind of, you know, stuff. Like even with the young people, I really encourage them. I'm like, do, please do not do any more De- David Mamet. Like, you know, it's it's such a like, oh, I want to act. I'm going to do a David Mamet play. I'm like, yeah. let's do, do something different. Like push yeah. the boundaries, you know, yeah. like get people off the chairs. There's, you know, during the pandemic, there was um, these pictures of, you know, because they were talking about a social distancing and they posted these pictures of seats being removed from the theater and people were like, Oh, it's so sad. And I was like, you know what? That's kind of cool. Like maybe this is what we need. We need to remove Mm -hmm. these damn seats and see what else we can do inside this space that might open our sort of minds and imaginations, you know, maybe we can rethink the way that we're making things so that Mm -hmm. we're maybe creating, you know, like people are paying really good money to go see things in 3d and I'm like theater is 3d. So you know, let's use that. Let's use people. I think people do want to get off their couches and go somewhere and have like an experience, like Mm -hmm. a 360 kind of experience. Yeah, I don't think people want to sit and watch something. I think people want to stand or lie on the ground or be sort of thrown into something, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so a lot of this kind of, a lot of work it's, it's happening here, you know, like outside the March does a lot of this amazing kind of immersive kind of work. You know, Daniele Bartolini is another director I can think of who's doing Mm. a lot of that kind of work. But I think there could be more of that where inside the theater, you know, you're not necessarily being asked to do the thing that you've always been asked to do. Maybe now you're being asked to stand and open a drawer and, you know, I don't know, follow some storyline that way. And then you can maybe sit somewhere and listen to something, you know, like I don't really Mm. know. We're we're playing with that a little bit at Theater Pass Mariah now. So we have a show coming up in our season called Miriam's World, which is a, you know, a lot of people might say it's an exhibition, right? But to us, it's an experience. We're trying the idea of bringing people inside the main space so that they can move around it, right? Like they don't have mm-hmm. to necessarily, they can sit if they want to. There are chairs there. And they can stay for as long as they want, but they can mm-hmm. also just sort of sift through it. It's up to them. It's their decision to make yeah. what kind of experience they want to have inside. But it is a different way than, you know, coming and sitting and going to intermission. You know, that kind of, you know, there's, there's a beauty to it, for sure, in terms of what the way theater is always made, you know, we yeah. can expect. But I, I am I am investigating, or I'm curious about other forms of experiences theatrical experiences mm. we can have inside our spaces
0: years ago i saw many years ago i was in high school at the time i saw a show at the canadian stage it was called donut city and it was completely in the like completely immersive so scenes could take place behind you or in front of you or over here like you were in the space and it just happened around you and that kind of experience of like not knowing like where the next scene is going to happen was it really jolted you out of like any kind of complacency you're like this is not what i was expecting because it was it was very exciting to have it just happening right there
1: it's visceral right like that's the beauty of that's what i'm saying i saw another show like that at a theater center i think theater center was doing a lot of amazing work and I think it was called This Is How We Got Here, but I could be completely making that up. So do not quote me on this. I apologize, but it's a beautiful dance show. Oh god, I don't remember the names, but you know, anyway, beautiful show and same idea, you, you know, there was they asked you to take your shoes off and it's, it's one of those shows that I think if if Theater Center had the financial capacity mm. to really market it, to really say, "Hey, this is what's going on. This is super cool. Do not miss this." I think people would flock to it, just like they would at a sunflower field to take pictures, you know, as yeah, yeah. inside of it, it's visceral, like you could sit very close to the performance, you can feel them moving, the lights are doing a thing on you, you know, the music is just moving through you. I think people want those kinds of experiences.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, to leave the theater world for a moment. Yes. as One podcaster to another. Tell me about your dating podcast. Oh, yes. So fun.
1: That this was a a pandemic sort of love affair for, you know, that period of time where we were like, hey, maybe we should do something else and, you know, have fun with something else. A friend of mine really wanted us to start a podcast together. She'd been talking about it way before the pandemic. And I'd always sort of been like, I don't know. I'm not really that's not my thing, you know. And of course the pandemic happened and like everybody became a podcaster, you right. know. It's like, "Ooh, yeah, microphone and I can do this." And so so did we. We decided, "Okay, let's do this. This is time." And uh, yeah, we we really wanted I really wanted to do something that was just fun, you know. I didn't want to do another podcast where you're just talking, you know, like I was like, I don't really have much to say, you know, like I'm not that smart. (laughs) So I was like, I don't know that we need to like, you know, find a podcast where we're talking to each other about things, you know, but, um, so yeah, for some reason the dating idea came on came, you know, about and we're like, "Oh, you know what? They do, we don't have we don't have like a dating po- I you know, I'm obsessed with the reality TV show like dating reality TV shows." So I was watching a lot of that and I was like, "I would totally listen to a dating podcast if there was one." So that's where the idea came from and uh, we ran it for a bit until when it became a little bit too difficult to run. So now mm. it's just sort of in limbo like in sort of should we continue it? Should we not continue it? We're still thinking about it.
0: Like, did you follow a couple on a date?
1: So the show, essentially, no. What we do is we bring on... It's a, it's a game show. So we bring a single of the week. And then we introduce that single of the week to three eligible other singles. And over the course of the episode, we play a whole bunch of games. And at the end of that, we say, who would you rather, you know, who would you rather go on a date with? So they get to pick, you know, they haven't met this, but they don't see each other at all. It's this Mm complete blind date, but what they do get to do is they get to play these games with them. They get to hear their voice and they get to ask them questions and vice versa. right? Right. So it's super fun. And you know, I think people, it's also for me, it was sort of the obsession with, dating apps have be, have turned the dating world into this sort of superficial like swiping left or right and so you're basically making a decision whether somebody's the right match for you based on just like a two-dimensional picture you know and you know we've forgotten about the three-dimensionality that we have and how we turned on we might be by somebody that you might not necessarily swipe right on do you know what i yeah. mean and so in a way the show was responding to that exhaustion around you know a visual based kind of dating to something that's more auditory so then mm. you get a sense of them you know you really get yeah. to hear them people responded really well they loved the idea a lot of people that we had on our show were kind of like oh this is amazing can i always date like this you know <laughs> yeah so that's essentially the show and then at the end of that they get to go on a date together but because of the pandemic some of the dates were outside and they were on a mm. park and you know that was completely between the two of them like sure, yeah but some of them were on zoom in fact. And so it was, it was super fun.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, the whole dating thing is, is, you know, I like the, the idea, the whole swiping thing has made dating feel like a catalog. And so you're, you're like always searching Amazon for, well, I found this, but is there, is there like something like, this is fine for now, but is there, is there something better, which is so like, you know, when I was, its, wrong yeah. when I was dating, but thankfully, I'm not anymore. but like i when I was out doing that, it was all so very you you'd talk be talking to somebody, and then they would sort of like you get the sense that they're just sort of waiting. like the, I'm entertaining them for now until something else comes along. And it's yeah. just so frustrating,
1: yeah, it it feels and that's what it feels like. It feels like people are just constantly distracted. Yeah, for sure. There's just distraction. And the thing is, when you start dating at the beginning, you can be very easily distracted. Yeah. And it's almost like people are too available, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, you know you're just like oh, I had a kind of okay date you know we will not even give people a second chance because no. like, oh, it was okay like it was fine but it was okay and so you're like I'm just gonna go on the dating app and swipe again you know because yeah. you know I'm playing the. it's you know I, I heard this other podcast I think that was talking about dating in today's world and it's really set up in a way that it makes you want to go back because what the apps want is for you to continuously be single yes continuously play the game they don't want people to match up. I mean, let's be honest here, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so they might that's what they're selling to you. So they want you to match. But yeah. what they want is for you to just kind of like play the roulette game, you know, like again, 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 right? And so yeah, yeah there there are other ways to rethink, I think, dating. And again, so this is me rethinking things. Like I was like, <laughs> How I break the structure of dating in in today's world. But the podcast was certainly one of the attempts, but and I'm not sure if it's just something that you can
0: that you can sustain for a long period of time. It's so. I mean, there's a lot of work involved in that kind of thing, right? Like, you yeah, have to, you're
1: not getting paid. No, you know, exactly. like it's like just casting alone is yeah. hours and hours and hours sure. of work. And you know, eventually we were like, this is super fun. We're having a great time. But at this point, it's turned into a lot of work. And yeah. not the
0: times. <laughs> well, know? that's the problem. Is yeah. is you know. Almost nobody's making money from podcasts. And yeah. News flash to anybody listening. But like How long have you been doing it for? 6 years. Good for you. Yeah. <laughs> I must be getting something out of it. But it's not money. But it's it's there you have to keep it at a level where it's doable for you and you're still enjoying it. Yeah. You know? It that's sort of the necessary thing. And if 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 it's taking more time or it's no longer enjoyable, you gotta let it go i agree i
1: agree yeah yeah it's not worth it you know and i think that's where we're at right now we're kind of like that's why we're not fully letting it go the podcast is available people can listen to it it's called who would you rather you can find it everywhere but for us we're saying we'll pick it up again when it's time for us to have fun again Mm. like you know for a while we're like what are we gonna do our listeners were like what we can do whatever we want. Like nobody's not sleeping at night because we haven't released an episode, you know, like it doesn't matter. There you go. So um, I think if we, when we started to look at it from that perspective, that it's like, this is something that we can do because we're enjoying our time together. You know, the yeah, the, the other two hosts and producers are friends of mine. So we're like, we're going to pick it up again when it's time. At this point, we have other things that are keeping us busy.
0: It's always the kind of thing where you, like much like, you know, your project-based theater company—it's something that you can just sort of like go to. You could do a special episode, and there it would be. You know, exactly, exactly. You could—it can be whatever, whatever, and whenever you need it to be. I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah. In terms of like exploring theater and and live performance and how it can be experienced better, I mean, podcasting. You know, I experienced i experimented with some audio drama things like that while the pandemic was on. There's all kinds of different ways that, 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 that companies have, have sort of flirted with continuing to produce. And video has been one of them. Theatre Pass Mariah, did were, were there any attempts at putting anything out as a live stream or a live, a live performance over video?
1: Yeah, I think for us, it became important that we wanted to continue. Like you said, you know, we started in 2019. Marjorie's like the two, the 19, 2019, 2020 season was a season that was already programmed by the previous artistic director, Andy mm-hmm. mccann So the 2020, 2021, which is the peak of the, the, the pandemic was Marjorie's first season mm-hmm. of programming. Right. And, uh, and, you know, and in a way mine as well, cause I was the associate. And so we were both very excited about the programming we put in place and, Sadly, we saw all the shows kind of have to move to a different way of thinking. And so we weren't going to just let it go. And we worked with a lot of artists that wanted to explore what digital theater meant. And for us, what we discovered was one of the core values at TPM is our desire to be an inclusive theater company. So we're really thinking about accessibility initiatives, you know, at the forefront of everything that we do. And we found that actually providing digital ways of experiencing theater actually fulfilled an accessibility need, that there are individuals who are not actually able to leave their homes and they want to actually have the theatrical experiences. So, you know, for us right now, this is something that's going to remain. Digital work is going to remain in our season. We have some this year as well. We did a lot of live streaming. Last year, we did all sorts of kind of live streaming from, you know, very simple stuff like development things. I did a piece with Luke Reese, for example, and that's in development where the camera just follows him around the space as he's telling his story and and then other pieces like my play which is called Toka where it was you know multi camera essentially film shoot you know and it's pre-recorded and beautifully edited and then it gets live streamed for specific times to the audiences but it is a pre-recording of a theatrical experience mm. but it's really using capacity and beauty of film to its full extent, right? Like the close-ups, right? Like yeah. film has such, so much power with close-ups. We don't have that in theater, right? We have sort of magnitude in theater, you know, sort yes. of that like, big lighting, big set kind of idea. So we played with that a lot and we're going to continue playing right now. We have a show called Okay, You Can Stop Now, which is a dance piece by Shaquille Rolock. And uh, with that one, he's investigating what the media or the perception of of stories and 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 people's lives through the media especially on on POC and black b- bodies the ways the ways in which a story gets sort of twisted or told in a different way and how it's get framed or contextualized in a way that it makes one seem guilty or not guilty, right? In certain circumstances. And in today's age, we have these phones that we mm-hmm. just pull mm-hmm. out. We're like, oh, there, I recorded it, you know? And then we were just like, this is proof. And you're like, but is it proof? Because maybe somebody just recorded a very small section to it. Yeah. Or sometimes it is, like it is actual proof. Like, you know, they've captured, you know, the situation. With, the reason that we responded the way we did to George Floyd is because we saw it. Mm-hmm. like. hmm For a lot of people, they were like, this is what we've been talking about. For a lot of other people, it was like, I cannot believe that this is what's been going on, right? There was this sort of like, but, you know, people responded to that because of that recording, the ability of these little things, the technology. Mm -hmm. And so he's really investigating that through dance. And what we're going to do is going to live stream it through different cameras for the performers are manipulating so you mm. on the, as an audience can come and watch it and you'll see different kinds of cameras capturing these different moments. So you'll be able to see different sort of sections to mm. think. And so we're playing on that idea of what what the power of these phones or, or, or video capture can be mm. and how it can actually support and make us, you know, make this a better society. And sometimes it can, you know, screw us over.
0: Yeah, for sure. I'm really glad to hear that Theatre pass is continuing with the video because I, I've been saying for a while that it opens accessibility doors. Not mm-hmm. just not just the accessibility door of uh, for people who can't leave their house, but also for people who maybe can't get to the theater, whether they yep. live far away from the theater or even like the like go a night of going out to the theater is too much because of you have to get dinner and you have to do this that, and the other thing and just, I think there's it opens up so much and I uh, there are so few theaters who I think are still committed to the video because there's Actra and Equity and they all right. want their piece right the roots, yeah. and that that becomes a problem that I think I hope eventually they'll come to some kind of accommodation but part of the skeptic in me thinks that they will just keep the status quo but yeah. i think it's so important to keep doing it yeah. in that way
1: yeah absolutely i i couldn't agree more i think that's definitely what we'll be doing i know that there are other theaters that are thinking the same we've partnered with the culture in vancouver and they're doing a whole digital series so they're going to do digital presentations they're presenting one of our pieces which is the Cello, that's going on right now at at theater pass, Mariah, you can come see it in person, but it's but it also will be an auditory experience, so you can come, you know, experience it. We haven't released the dates, but it's mm. going to be something that you can also experience auditorily. So we're approaching it from different perspectives. Not every project uses video. Some projects might be just auditory experience. Some projects might be you get something sent in the mail. Who the hell knows? Like it's it varies on what the artist wants to be saying. You know, mm. we always like to put the artist at the center and what they want to say first. And Mm -hmm. then these other elements, I think, should enhance what you want to say. Like in this case with Shaquille, Mm. you know, bringing the video makes total sense. It actually, you know, helps tell the story better. And so that's our approach. And I think, I hope that other theaters do it as well. For me personally, I just love that I can access theater in England or in Italy or in other parts of the world that you, you know you wouldn't be able to see stuff because you can't be there physically right so now you can
0: yeah i think it also breaks down the canadian silo because mm-hmm. um you know if we're in toronto we often don't know what's happening or we have, don't we certainly can't see what's happening in edmonton or or in vancouver things like that Sharing the video and making that available, again, it lets us connect uh-huh, 100%. Uh, in this this massive country that has all of these like little dots of theater across it. And I think it's so important. I know it's something that that the St. John Theatre Company, I did their Fringe Festival, and they mm-hmm. had been doing video through the pandemic. And they even outfitted one of their main spaces, with like a three camera setup that they could just like run from. And they hadn't intended to do video this year at their Fringe Festival. And they found out their audience was demanding it. Wow! And so they, they flipped and they were like, all right, so we're going to offer these digital tickets. And it's not going to be a live stream because that's too much for us to do right now. But they did record each performance, each of the shows and made it available for a limited amount of time. During the, so oh, during, during the fringe so during show. the fringe so during the fringe if you couldn't make it out to the theater you could still see the wow. see the show that's amazing and i think that kind of thing is so necessary to yeah to, i agree yeah i really hope that Great. it's something we keep we keep exploring
1: yeah i hope so too as well I, I i can see that and and not just that but i hope that it gets you know that the technology gets better and better and that we are able to have even more exciting adventures, you know, mm. from a uh, technological perspective. And I also think that that kind of work goes back to sort of where we started or the conversation that we had earlier, which was, you know, how do we build better experiences that mm. will bring more audiences? I do think that this, this will bring more audiences to the theater. We just have to start finding ways to use it. So that it doesn't necessarily resemble, you know, a, a Netflix experience, right? right. Like, right. because we can't compete with that. We cannot compete no. with
0: that. <laughs> no, and that's the thing. No. Is that's is like, I think it's important that that you know we're still doing theater. We're not making films. We're correct. But like to live stream, and even if you can manage to get like a like three cameras in a space, you can still make it dynamic, and you can still make it make it fun. Correct. Yes. Um, and it's all doable because you can all do that live. uh it's just something that i think is is worth exploring and i i I, I commend uh theater pass for keeping it going and i hope more companies try that too thank you and yeah i couldn't agree more well indra thank you so much for for talking with me today i really appreciate your time
1: yeah thanks for having me this is
0: a ton of fun thanks thank you This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you wanna keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you wanna leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at stageworthypod and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you wanna find me, You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at philrickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy.